Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome back to a new criminal case. In 1999, a most unusual film arrived on the American big screen called The Blair Witch Project. The film was shot over a few days in the deep woods around Baltimore and featured three actors unknown to the general public. Its success was absolutely unprecedented for a movie of that scale. In short, the plot of the Blair Witch Project is about three film students who travel to the woods of the Black Hills to investigate the legend of a witch who had supposedly been haunting the woods for centuries. The project was filmed in a pressure cooker environment where the actors were left in their own devices without any real direction and the terror was real. Everything suggested that the film was just a publicity stunt and that the events took place exactly as they had on screen. But beyond the urban legend, what was it really all about? Where did fiction end and the true story, the one rarely discussed, really begin? Whether you've been a fan of the film since its release or if you've just discovered it, we invite you to join us to find out more about this thrilling case of twists and turns. This story was suggested to us by Jonathan Graveron. I just want to apologize to Josh's mom, to Mike's mom and to mine. I'm sorry because it's all my fault. I'm the one who brought them here. I'm the one who said, let's keep walking south. It was my fault because it was my project. What was that? I'm afraid to close my eyes. I'm afraid to open them. I'm so scared. I don't know what's out there. We're going to die here. In October 1994, three friends who were film students, Heather, Mike, and Josh, were preparing to head out to the Black Hills Forest in Maryland in order to do some research on the legendary Blair Witch. The goal of this trip was to film a documentary on the subject of black magic and ritualistic sacrifices. But things didn't go as planned. Before the advent of vlogging, the film was already creating quite a buzz in an era where the internet was not yet widely used. The first few minutes of the Blair Witch Project are realistic but confusing. The video is amateurish, the editing is rough, the sequences are intimate but clumsy. Yet as we, the viewers, watch three young adults prepare to leave on this trip, we can find ourselves already on the edge of our seats. The documentary project was important to the students as they wanted it to be successful even though that they were not perfect in any of the filming techniques. But that didn't matter. Their professor assured them that the content had to be sensational and that the visual quality was only of secondary importance. The first stop was Burkittsville a small village of wooden houses where we can see them do some last-minute shopping at a convenience store and they also fill up with gas. 
Heather acted as the reporter and asked residents about the legend of the witch. The oldest residents were unanimous that they should turn back because the woods were haunted. Yet the youngest townspeople joked about it and encouraged them to keep going with their adventure. In the convenience store, the three students came across two fishermen who gave them the same warning, but the trio was still determined. Their project depended precisely on the originality of the subject matter and they welcomed the senses of danger. Heather, Michael, and Josh then left Burkittsville and literally drove into the woods. They parked their car at the front of a clearing, took out their backpacks and camping equipment, and walked deeper into the Black Hills. The first step was to visit Coffin Rock, where according to rumors, five men had been ritually killed in the 1800s. The crime had remained unsolved ever since then. As they walked, the trio came across some cairns, which were like a pile of stones set in reliefs to mark the passage to a particular spot. This was a commonly used technique in Celtic countries, but to find it here was very unusual. It unusually got dark very early in the autumn season in Maryland, so Heather, Josh, and Mike found a spot to set up camp where they would spend the night. White light, muffled whispers, what was happening? Strange cracking noises awoke the three friends with a start. Someone was walking alongside their tent, possibly an animal or maybe even a trapper. Heather and the boys remained curled up in their place and hoped that the noise would stop. Then there was a long silence. The noise seemed to have magically stopped. The next day, the three friends walked back to where they had left their car to get a few things that they had forgotten that night before, but to their surprise, the car was not there. Disoriented and very worried, they went back to the spot where they had camped the previous night. The anxiety was almost palpable. The day went by uncomfortably. Even Heather, unusually considered to be the most optimistic and level-headed among the group, had started to become concerned. Night fell and they had no other choice but to go back to their tents. The night would be short this time and punctuated by disturbing sounds of children's laughter. The three students were literally terrified. Where were these voices coming from? To their knowledge, there was no one camping nearby. In any case, what family would ever bring their children to spend the night in such a dark forest as this one? The next morning, when they awoke, they discovered that their cairns had been built around their tent during the night. Struggling against the mounting panic created by the weirdness of these latest events, they decided to use their compass to find a side road or even a shortcut to get them out of the woods that had become increasingly threatening now. They had the feeling that someone had been watching them ever since they had arrived and were having fun frightening them in the hopes of seeing them run away. At that point, they still hoped to find their car. Irritated at the end of their rope and which their food supply running dangerously low, the trio's mood began to change. The three friends who were so happy at the beginning of their trip now started to fight amongst themselves. They argued over simply looking at each other the wrong way or giving an opinion that sounded too much like an order. Heather, who had more or less organized the whole thing as the leader, was now being given a cold shoulder by the two boys who sided against her and didn't even bother to answer when she asked them a question. Soon, the verbal attacks on each other became increasingly virulent. However, as night fell, they put aside their differences, shared a last cigarette by the campfire and forced themselves to appear calm even though they were not. Then, the same thing happened again. The childlike laughter returned to disturb them for another anguished night. This time, it was even worse, as it sounded closer and closer and more and more demonic. What if the resident of Burkitt's will were right after all? What if the spirit of the Blair Witch was still lurking in these woods? The documentary that they had planned to shoot was nothing more than a memory now. 
what was most important thing at that point was to escape from this trap, one that had been voluntarily set. To make matters worse, Mike was starting to become unhinged and soon Josh too followed. The unwelcoming words had taken on a personality of its own, one that was dark, threatening, and that took a real pleasure in seeing the group lost. The trio were now in a labyrinth while all they could do was to go round and round. At the end of the fourth day, they were exhausted from going in circles and tired from long hours of forced walking. The boys were ready to give up and threatened to leave Heather all alone if she insisted on walking south while filming their misadventure. They knew that she still hoped to impress the professor when they returned by adding these missing scenes as proof that she had gone through a lot of trouble to get them. But the excitement was long gone. How could she still be thinking about filming this damn project in this state of mind? However, they still had more surprises in store because soon they found themselves in hostile territory where they discovered some mysterious little dolls made from twigs hanging from the trees. But what was the reason behind this charade? The most disturbing part of it all was that these three figurines seemed to have been created in their likeliness. Who was the crazy person who was having so much fun tormenting them like this? Is it possible that the witches were still living in the woods? They turned and ran. Heather, Mike, and Josh were awakened during the night by something they had seen or heard. Hastily, they left their camp and headed blindly into the woods. It was a matter of life or death. It was now clear that someone was trying to chase them away or trying to mislead them further. In the middle of a clearing, they found themselves in front of an old greystone house that had apparently been long abandoned. As they ventured inside, Heather, Michael, and Josh found that everything was in disarray. Was there anyone still living here? They weren't sure. Intrigued, they decided to split up to cover the dwelling, one on the ground floor, one upstairs, and one in the basement. They found strange inscriptions in an unfamiliar language written all along the walls. They had no other choice but to walk over the leftover food and wrappers that littered the floor in order to get one from the room to another. Everything about the place seemed gloomy, dirty, and creepy. The group began to call out one another in the dark. They were afraid, very afraid. The final images found on Heather's camera showed Josh standing with his face to the wall, completely transfixed as if he were hypnotized and Heather's pleas did not get him to move. Something suggested that she was dragged outside by the room by someone whose face remained unseen. These were the final terrifying chilling images filled by the camera before the screen went dark. When Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, the two producers of the Blair Witch Project, invested a sum of $60,000 in an amateur film in which they had little faith, they were unaware that they had just pulled off one of the biggest bluffs in the history of modern film at a time when social media networks were not yet in existence to share information at the speed of light. What was the secret recipe for success for this cinematic phenomenon that was so understated in terms of its casting and its budget? Was it because of authentic characters or as a result of a news item that usually took place, which Hollywood tried hard to cover up? It was a rather unique and radical marketing strategy. In fact, well before its release on screens in the United States, the Blair Witch Project was already generating a lot of talk. The film had managed to build an audience even before it was released. Was it really possible to do all of that in 1999? Just a few days before the film's release, flyers with the words missing were handed to people standing at the ticket lines at theaters all over the country. The simple flyers in black and white showed photos of the three main protagonists with the names of the three actors, Heather Donahue, Michael Williams, and Joshua Leonard, which they also used in the film. 
and just below there was a request. If you have any information at all, please contact your nearest police headquarters. The tone had been set, people took the bait and were convinced that the three actors had met with an accident or had been victims of some maniac while they were filming in the Black Hills Forest. It only took a few days before Blair Witch Case became the topic of conversation among old young Americans between the ages of 16 and 25. As for the film crew, there was complete silence. In fact, Daniel and Eduardo were not answering the phone or responding to any mail, which added extra weight to the mystery. Through their actions, their marketing strategy reached even more staggering proportions, especially since there were police reports on the film's official website, which gave more credibility to the theory that the actors had been murdered or disappeared. The IMDb website, a movie database, itself added additional fuel to the fire by presenting the three actors as being presumed dead. All the elements were in place to support the hoax that had cleverly been orchestrated by the film crew. Soon, the Blair Witch phenomenon would spread to countries on the other side of the Atlantic, in England, as well as in France, Spain, Italy, and Germany. The film with the missing actors would cause a media sensation and provide grist for discussion and speculation. The found-footed subgenre of cinematography, based on the premise that the plot starts at the end with the discovery of an audio tape which explains the central story, often filmed by amateurs to give it an imperfect and deliberately realistic rendering adds to the emotional component. In the Blair Witch Project, there is also a striking lack of special effects. Everything is done in a natural setting. The dialogue and the reactions, the use of improvisation, as well as the actual accounts from Burkittsville residents give the impression that the three friends had really been captured and killed by the Blair Witch. The recipe worked so well that for a long time the film's producers deliberately kept people guessing about the actual course of events. The ordinary and unremarkable appearance of the three protagonists also seemed to imply that there was no way that these were real film actors. According to legend, the camera belonging to the three students had been found in the woods and the content was shown as kind of the posthumous documentary film. From that moment on, the forests and state of Maryland were overrun with groupies who came to find possible evidence. Many of them played detective and makeshift teams began to carry out their own investigations in hopes of finding evidence or clues. The little dolls made of wood, left deliberately in the trees after ending a film, were discovered by astonished and shocked fans. For many, the presence of voodoo dolls such as these could only refer to a ritualistic sacrifice. The famous effigies would later become a symbol of the film and became a significant part of popular culture later on. The phenomenon took on such tremendous proportions that even the parents and families of actors Heather Donahue, Michael William, and Joshua Leonard started receiving messages of condolence. What the greater public did not know was that the production asked them to keep up the pretense as long as possible. Daniel and Eduardo successfully managed to produce a sensational film with a very modest budget and they planned to make the most out of it. As part of the deception, they concurrently filmed The Curse of the Blair Witch, a kind of mock documentary where they discussed the film as if it were a genuine news story. But just as every good or surprising thing must come to an end, the deception was eventually uncovered by fans that saw the film dozens of times in a row in hopes of finding potential clues. By paying close attention as credits scrolled by, viewers eventually realized that they had been conned. It was all purely a work of fiction, wherein all the people, places, or names were a product of someone's imagination. Ah, yes, Blair Witch had been a skillfully orchestrated hoax that turned into a real pop culture phenomenon and had earned a lot of money for the production company. 
The discovery prompted many to breathe a sigh of relief or annoyance, and the trio, who were all safe and sound, finally opened up to talk about the shooting conditions. Heather, Michael, and Joshua, like in the film, explained that they had received very little information about how the film would be shot after they had been initially cast. In terms of equipment, they were provided with a car, two cameras, and a GPS. The only information that they had was that everything was supposed to take place in the Lost Woods of Maryland, just outside Baltimore. Just like the three roles that were playing, they were left to fend for themselves in order to give the authenticity to their roles. Throughout shooting, they never saw a single member of the film crew and were only given radio instructions by the director and his assistants, which was confusing for a new actor who was not accustomed to his style of filmmaking. The lead actress herself even admitted that she wanted to quit the production. In short, everything that happened in the film was actually experienced by the three actors. They really did camp in the woods. They were intentionally encouraged to get themselves lost and to improvise. And for the strange sounds heard during the night, created by the production team, none of the three actors knew what was going on, which meant that Heather Donahue's fear was not an act. She truly was frightened at that moment in the film. They had to wrap the whole thing up in eight days in order to move on to the editing phase. The result was a film with shifting angles, shaky cameras, breathing noises, and sounds of footsteps. The film's flaws were accentuated and the actors wore almost no makeup. It was as if the viewers was watching a video of a camping trip filmed by one of the family or somebody next door's neighbor. These aberrations and deliberate shortcomings gave Blair Witch a certain prestige. The viewer becomes fully mesmerized in the film's ever-increasing tension. Whatever frightened the three students was never seen since they were not able to film it, but that only increased the discomfort further. Then, there was a terrifying and memorable final scene which made such a lasting impression and sent moviegoers rushing to the darkened theaters to see it and try to understand how it was done. Because ultimately, a lingering question remained. Who was behind the camera? Was it Michael, Heather, or the witch? We'll never know. As a result of this elaborate setup, Blair Witch Project became one of the most profitable films in the movie history. It was a genuine commercial success with close to $250 million earned at the box office alone. Driven by the general public's morbid curiosity, it delivered old-fashioned thrills without the use of special effects or other complications. In just a few months, the film became a cult hit and was known all over the world. Collector DVDs and a whole range of related merchandise were also issued and they became must-haves for any self-respecting fan. Well, of course, it's possible to simply accept the fictional version of this story, yet in the state of Maryland, the tale of Blair Witch was considered anything but a simple story told around the campfire at Halloween. It was part of a human history that began when the first colonists arrived in New England, at a time when the United States itself had not yet been fully formed into the country as it's known today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ah, sure. Brendan, where have you been? Looking for a girl with green eyes? My dark raw scene is my Colleen. Ellie Kevort arrived in Baltimore in November 1769 after spending several weeks crossing the rough Atlantic Ocean, which constantly threatened to capsize the ship seafarers with its thousand immigrants, mostly from Northern Europe, on board. Ellie was Irish and she hummed the Gaelic song Rosin Dub, Black Rose on the Bridge all throughout the crossing. The song's final verses were her favorite. I was born and reared there where the mountains of Morn come down to the sea. It's such a long, long way from Tipperary. Just like her downtrodden fellow citizens, Ellie Kilward was filled with the feeling of longing, but unlike those who were traveling as a couple or a part of a family of 5, 10, or even 15 people, she was not leaving anyone behind. She no longer had parents who would cry as she left or a house to go to. Back at home, she briefly considered joining the order and retiring to a convent for lack of anything better to do, but another destiny awaited her on the other side of the ocean. She had never married. In Ireland, she had never even met the Brendan Refford in her song, but she still hoped to meet him here in the new world that was so full of riches and marriageable men with good prospects. She settled in Blair in the province of Maryland. Every season, the village of colonists welcomed newcomers who had just arrived from the continent. The forest and the abundance fauna became the ideal location for hunting despite periodic attacks from aboriginals who were desperate to protect their territory from these white-skinned parasites with strange outfits. Ellie Coward was not able to find a house in the Blair Village Center, but did find refuge in a cottage at the edge of the wood. With a skill she inherited from her faith healer grandmother, she grew medicinal herbs and made portions to cure several maladies of the era. Bit by bit, Ellie's reputation grew in the neighboring villages and women came to consult her not only for advice but also to buy vials she made filled with purplish or greenish liquid depending on which plant she had used to make them. She also made soap, hydrolates, and ointments which she later sold. That's how she guaranteed her subsistence at a time when women did not earn a living in their own merits. The healer's cottage was the exact replica of the wretched hovel where she had grown up. Even the fireplace had been painted with white lime to evoke the fragrance of her former Irish home. She had hung a crucifix and her baptismal locket on the wall. When she did her shopping in the village, Ellie was on the lookout for a gentleman who had just arrived one who was unaccompanied and who wore scuffy clothes, which was a sign that he did not have yet a wife to take care of him. She watched, stole a glance and blushed slightly in hopes of being noticed. But who would ever want a woman who had lived on her own for so long? In fact, at the time, it was not a good thing to be a single woman, especially one so young and who lived in seclusion in a country that was still new and in which the Inquisition had wrecked havoc not so long ago. At first, it was children who denounced Ellie to their mothers accusing her of having cast a spell on them and causing them to have nosebleeds. The matter was eventually dismissed because the same mothers were the very ones who used to go visit Ellie, freely drink her tea and eat her oat cakes and marshmallow jams. Everyone knew of her kindness, her unpretentiousness and her natural hospitality. She reminded them all of a sister who spoke in a strange rural accent and who would constantly make jokes. An evil woman would never have done anything like that. Yet, the rumor continued to grow despite the vow of secrecy because a few weeks later, a group of teen accused her of having tried a lure to lure them into her home to drink their blood so that she could maintain her radiant complexion. 
Ellie, whom a minority of the villagers still try to defend, was summoned by the local sheriff to answer some questions about the nature of her activities. She was held at the station overnight. The next day, her house was searched. Vials, funnels, and still, a cauldron and books written in unknown language, Irish Gaelic were seized as evidence. Soon afterwards, the poor woman was facing accusations of being a practitioner of black magic. This was the 18th century. Although she swore to her gods that only thing that she practiced was ancestral medicine, but no one wanted to listen to her. Her things were sent to Baltimore's chief prosecutor, who issued a decree which gave the residents of Blair permission to punish her. The memory of the terrible Salem witch trial was still very much on many people's minds, and it was absolutely out of the question for such an event to take place in Maryland. In the sheriff's cell, Ellie prayed in Latin from the Bible and called on protective forces in her Gaelic mother tongue. The deputy sheriff then accused her of speaking Satan's language and summoning him to protect her from the punishment that awaited her. The next day, in broad daylight, she was delivered to the villagers who inflicted the cruelest of punishments upon her. Ellie was attached to a wagon and dragged by two men from the village to the depths of the Black Hill Forest where she was abandoned. That January had been particularly cold and icy, but the pleas of the so-called witch did not garner even an ounce of pity from her executioners. They returned to their village, leaving her alone in the dark, cold woods. Wolves began to prowl all around Ellie as the object of their hungry gaze. A few days later, a group of villagers went back to the forest to see if Miss Kiever was still alive. She was. They left thinking to themselves, well, let's give it a few more days. But to their great surprise, they found that she was still very much alive when they returned a second time. But then, they were convinced that only a creature protected by the dark forces could have survived as long as she had in the forest, without being eaten by wild animals. They went back to the village and during the night, armed with torches accompanied by a horde of children and dogs, they began savagely beating the faith healer until her blood flowed and she drew her last breath. They chopped up her corpse and hung it from a tree before quickly fleeing the forest, fear of being haunted by her vengeful spirit. Ellie Kevard's massacre took place in 1784. Two years later, during the winter of 1786, children from the village of Blair began to die or disappear one after another, and then adults do suffer the same fate. Upon learning the news, the residents of the city of Baltimore never set foot again as the village was now considered to be cursed. Ellie had returned to seek vengeance, and now her relentless and tortured spirit lurked in every corner of the village. In 1820, construction began on a new railway line connecting Washington to Baltimore and the deserted village was now occupied by laborers working on the line. The rumors of the uninhabited village persisted and eventually caught the attention of the town's leading citizens including a certain Henry Burkitt who, aware of the importance of this kind of investment in the future, decided to purchase the village of Blair and renamed it to Burkittsville in his honor. Five years later, as a result of financial investments from Burkett's company, the village transformed into a livable place that attracted an increasing number of families who had recently migrated to the United States. The Treacle family, who had just arrived from England two years earlier, moved into one of the houses in Burkittsville. Soon, they were joined by new neighbors and the village turned into a peaceful existence prior to the gloomy events of 1784 during a town festival which had been organized to celebrate the end of the harvest season. Ellen, the youngest member of the Trickle family, strayed from her parents and the other picnickers to go swimming in the Tappy East Creek River, located just below. The reason why the young girl was given permission to go swimming all by herself was because her family and her neighbors were feasting along the water's edge. 
but as she was slowly wading into the warm and peaceful water, the young girl was suddenly grabbed by a hand that reached out from the depths and gripped her by the arm and quickly dragged her down into the abyss. All under the horrified gaze of Eileen's family and several other villagers who were unable to react in the moment. The child never re-emerged from the water, but it was reported that several weeks later, a little reed puppet tied to a long string floated up the surface of the water. During the fall of 1886, young Robin Weaver, a little 12-year-old girl, went out of play in the woods of Black Hills while she waited for her mother to return after visiting a relative. Robin Weaver got lost in the forest and was unable to find her way back home. For three days, there have been no trace of her until eventually she came back on her own with a strange look on her face as if she had seen something terrifying. It was only after a few days that Robin agreed to talk about her misadventure. While she was lost in the woods and crying, she had met a strange woman who almost seemed to float about the ground and who offered to take her back home. She brought her to an abandoned howl and locked her in the basement, ordering her not to move and wait for her to come until she returned. But Robin got scared and managed to escape through a portal. She ran through the forest in the middle of the night before eventually remembering the way back to Burkittsville. After little Robin Weaver confessed what had happened, two expedition teams were sent into the forest of Black Hills to find the so-called woman who floated about the ground. Five men never returned from the expedition and their bodies were found in a clearing of coffin rock, arranged the shape of a cross and surrounded by cairns as if for a ritual pagan ceremony. Similarly, five puppets were found hanging from the trees. Was this the work of Ellie Kayward, who had never managed to find rest? After the incident, things gradually returned to normal. Like any other American village, Burkittsville also experienced shares of changes of all kinds. In Burkittsville in the early 1940s, pickup trucks had long since replaced the ox cart from the days gone by. Most homes now had their own radio as well as stocked refrigerator. Modern converts had changed people's outlook and the town's people now looked towards the future, which was more civilized and clearly more tolerant. However, between 1940 and 1941, there had been eight mysterious disappearances of children which once again shattered the tranquility of the little town that believed it had finally overcome the old cursed legend. Searches conducted by the authorities failed to turn up anything. It was me. It was me who killed the children. Come with me. I'll show you. The residents of Burkitt's will all knew Rustin Parr and how he rambled at times when he was a bit drunk. Usually his insane ranting made men smile and he stood by the counter of the town's only bar cafe. But this time, Rustin's gaze had a strange dark glow that no one could understand. This ageless weak man with his brown greasy flattened hair on his head that often had a blank stare aroused pity from most people rather than any other emotion. Parr was one of the outcasts of the American society. Those who never received any education, never worked or saved any money, and who never started a family in order to fit in. No one knew anything about his previous life or what kind of family he grew up in. All the residents of Burkittsville knew was that he lived alone in a stone house in a remote part of the woods in Black Hills and that he came to town twice a year to do his shopping and to stock up on some tobacco and alcohol. The rest of the time he spent entirely in the forest. In the vernacular, Rustin Parr was what one might call a hermit. I'm the one. I'm the one who killed the children. Come with me. Come, I'll show you. She was the one who forced me to kill them. I stopped at number seven and to confess everything. Alarming notions involuntarily began to emerge on the faces of everyone who was present in the bar on the day. Was he telling the truth? Joined by two members of the local police and a group of townspeople, Rustin Parr went down into his basement 
followed closely by the lit torches of the police. In a dark, damp corner of the room, where dust as well as the strange smell of rot and mold hung in the air, the witnesses discovered seven graves dug in the ground and covered in a small pile of stones similar to the Karens mentioned earlier. Shovels were brought in, and while a police officer placed the killer in handcuffs, the remains of the seven little bodies began to appear one after another. Some of them had been there for a year and a half and were now skeletal, while some had only been there for a few months. Eight children had disappeared. What happened to the eight? Rust and Parr then started laughing like a maniac. Ask him the question directly. Who are you talking about? The old woman. The one who talks to me every night. She scares me. She threatens me. She is the one who told me about the children. Then he starts screaming. Not the asylum. Please don't put me with the lunatics. I'll do hard labor if I have to. Upstairs, the eight children and sole survivor of the slaughter was found standing in a corner of the room with his face to the wall, shivering in fear. The child was Kylie Broad. The first one had been kidnapped by Rust and Parr and the only witness to the other abductions. Encouraged by the police, he explained how Rust and Parr had forced to help put the other children to death before ordering him to go back to the standing with his back to the wall. When questioned about the possibility of an older accomplice who directed the killer, Kylie Broad said that he had never seen any old woman lurking around. During his trial, Rust and Parr continued to mention this strange and threatening presence who would have given him all his instructions concerning the murders. He was told to kidnap eight children, to sacrifice seven of them, but to keep the eighth alive and then finally go to the city to turn himself in. Search teams scoured the woods of the Black Hills for days without ever finding a trace of the mysterious woman. Once, July 17, 1941, Parr was tried before the panel court of Baltimore for seven murders. He had nothing to say in his defense, even though he and his lawyers agreed to plead insanity. His request would go to be rejected by the judges because he was deemed to have acted with full awareness of what he was doing. During the hearing, Kylie Broad was called to testify. The following is an excerpt from his deposition. Parr ordered me to stand in the corner with my face to the wall. I could hear Emily screaming. I think he was about to cut her up. I saw that he was carving something into her cheek. Judge, what had he done with the other children? Kyle, he removed all their organs and then buried them. Judge, did you notice the presence of a woman during the killing? Kyle, no, never. Judge, what did Parr say to you when he saw you crying? Kyle, he told me that this was how it was going to be. He said that he would soon go pick someone else up for me. The seven victims were identified as Emily Hollins, Tara Shelley, Stephen Thompson, Michael Giudry, Eric Norris, Julie Forsett, and finally, Margaret Lowell. At the end of his trial, Rustin Parr was sentenced to death by hanging. The night before his execution, he admitted to his confessor that he was not the one who had killed the seven children, but rather someone else. He was executed on November 22, 1941. His house was completely burnt down by the authorities a few days later. Kylie Broad, the sole survivor of the carnage, subsequently found it difficult to reintegrate into society even within his own family. Everything seemed to suggest that he had also suffered sexual assaults at the hands of Rustin Parr while he was confined at his home. He became a troubled teenager who was accused of several acts of delinquency and who suffered from various neuroses. Kylie was sent to prison many times while in Florida and then a psychiatric hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, before eventually being admitted to the Maryland State Institute for Criminally Insane in Baltimore, a facility that specializes in housing irredeemable psychiatric cases with criminal tendencies.
A few weeks before his death, Kyle Brood also started talking about a monstrous old woman that he saw every night sitting at the edge of his bed or even completely stretching out alongside of him, keeping him from breathing. Kyle must surely have been suffering from an acute case of sleep paralysis, which could have manifested itself with these kinds of symptoms. During a televised report on psychiatric institution in the United States, a sequence showed Kyle about to write some strange phrases on a wall in an unknown language. According to experts, it was mostly Transitus Fluvi, a secret language mastered by adherents of black magic. He was found dead by suicide in his room in 1971 after having opened his veins with a blunt object. What remains today of the legend of the Blair Witch? Was it a folktale or rather a terrible injustice done to a woman whose only crime was to have lived a little bit too far outside the village? The 1999 film made the local story famous after it had been long relegated to oblivion due to the lack of any written record. Somehow, it had managed to create a climate of anxiety and evil surrounded by nature, a panic and discomfort that was so palpable that everyone who had already seen it remained affected for a long time by the protagonist's profound uneasiness that steadily increased as it approached the horrific final sequence. Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez had successfully produced a horror film where for the first time the villain was never seen and where the source of the terror was invisible to the naked eye, hidden all the while but whose threatening presence could be felt every minute. This film's famous closing scene single-handedly mobilized the attention of old Blair Witch fans and some pointed out a possible similarity with the position facing the wall that Rustin Parr forced his victims to hold before being murdered. As for the person last holding the camera, the answer may be revealed. Could it have been one of the three characters named Rustin Parr, Kali Brood, or even the witch herself? It was difficult to say with certainty. The mystery still lingers to this day as the producers willingly left it open-ended to allow the possibility for an unimaginable speculation. The concept of found footage, which the film had popularized, was used in the past in other productions such as the ghastly cannibal holocaust or even a few years later in the Ring trilogy. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take 5 seconds to leave us a 5-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.